Welcome to What's Out There. I'm your host, Grim Webster, and tonight on the show, we're talking about the Indiana Demon House. In November 2011, Latoya Amons and her family moved into a rental house in Gary, Indiana. Big black flies began to swarm their screened-in porch in December, and according to Rosa Campbell, Amons' mother, they killed them and killed them and killed them, but they kept coming back. After midnight, Campbell and Amons both said they occasionally heard the steady clump of footsteps climbing the basement stairs and the creak in the door opening between the basement and kitchen. No one was there. Even after they locked the door, the noise continued. Campbell said she awoke one night and saw a shadowy figure of a man pacing her living room. She leapt out of bed to investigate and found large, wet footprints. Now, on March 10, 2012, at about 2 a.m., normally, Campbell, Amons, and her children would have been asleep, but they were mourning the death of a loved one with a group of friends. Amons, who was in Campbell's bedroom, startled everyone by screaming, Mama, Mama! Campbell said she ran into her bedroom, where her then 12-year-old granddaughter and a friend were staying. Amons and Campbell said the 12-year-old was levitating above the bed, unconscious. According to their account of events, Amons and several others surrounded the girl and began to pray. Campbell said she remembers being terrified. Eventually, Campbell said her granddaughter descended onto the bed. The girl woke up with no memory of what happened. They called local churches, but most refused to listen. Eventually, after listening to Campbell and Amon's talk about the house and visiting it, officials at one church told them the house had spirits in it. They recommended the family clean the home with bleach and ammonia, then use oils to draw crosses on every door and window. At the church's suggestion, Amon said she poured olive oil over her three children's hands and feet, then smeared oil in the shape of crosses on their foreheads. Campbell and Amon's also said they reached out to two clairvoyants, who said the family's home was besieged with more than 200 demons. Their explanation made sense to Campbell and Amon's, they say, because it meshed with their Christian faith. Amon said she took a clairvoyant's advice and made an altar in the basement. Uh, she covered an end table with a white sheet, then placed a white candle and a statue of Mary, Joseph, and Jesus on it. She opened the Bible to Psalm 91. She said she and another person donned white t-shirts and wound white scarves around their heads. Also on a clairvoyance advice, they burned sage and sulfur throughout the house, starting upstairs and working their way down. The smoke was so thick they could hardly breathe. Amens drew a cross with the smoke. The person she was with read Psalm 91 aloud as they moved through the house. Amens said nothing odd happened for three days. Then things got worse. The family said demons possessed Amens and her children. Then they were seven, nine, and twelve. The kids' eyes bulged, evil smiles crossed their faces, and their voices deepened every time it happened. The youngest boy, who was seven at the time, sat in a closet talking to a boy that no one else could see. The other boy was describing what it felt like to be killed. 
Campbell said the seven-year-old once flew out of the bathroom as if he'd been thrown, and the headboard once smacked into Amos's daughter, causing a wound that needed stitches. The twelve-year-old would later tell mental health professionals that she sometimes felt as if she were being choked and held down so she couldn't speak or move. She said she heard a voice say she'd never see her family again and wouldn't live another twenty minutes. Some nights were so bad that the family slept at a hotel. Campbell said Amon's son cursed the family doctor in demonic voices, raging at him. Medical staff said the youngest boy was lifted and thrown into a wall with nobody touching him. The boys abruptly passed out and wouldn't come to. Someone from the doctor's office called 911. Seven or eight police officers and multiple ambulances showed up. Police and emergency personnel took the boys to Methodist Hospital's campus in Gary. Amon said hospital personnel laughed at her desire to anoint her sons in olive oil. The boys woke up in the hospital. The older boy acted rationally, but the youngest screamed and thrashed, and it took five men to hold him down. Meanwhile, somebody called the Department of Child Services and asked the agent to investigate Amon's for possible child abuse or neglect. The caller, who is not named in the DCS report, speculated that Amon's might have a mental illness. The person believed the children were performing for Amon's, and she was encouraging their behavior. The DCS family case manager, Valerie Washington, was asked to handle the initial investigation. She gave the following account to police and in her intake officer's report. Hospital personnel examined Amon's and her children and found them to be healthy and free of marks or bruises. A hospital psychiatrist evaluated Amon's and determined she was of sound mind. Washington interviewed the family in the hospital. While she spoke with Amon's, the seven-year-old boy started growling with his teeth showing, his eyes rolling back in his head. The boy locked his hands around his older brother's throat and refused to let go until adults pried his hands open. Later, Campbell joined them. The seven-year-old stared into his brother's eyes and began to growl again. "'It's time to die,' the boy said in deep, unnatural voice. "'I will kill you.' While the youngest boy spoke, the older brother started head-butting Campbell in the stomach. Campbell grabbed her grandson's hands and started praying. According to Washington's original DCS report, an account corroborated by Walker, the nurse, the nine-year-old had a weird grin and walked backward up a wall to the ceiling. He then flipped over Campbell, landing on his feet. Later, police asked Washington whether the boy had run up the wall, as though performing an acrobatic trick. No, Washington told them. She said the boy glided backward on the floor, wall, and ceiling, according to the police report. The next day, DCS took the emergency step of taking custody of the children without a court order. The Reverend Michael Maganet was leading Bible study in his living room the morning of April 20, 2012, when he received a call from a hospital chaplain. The chaplain asked him to perform an exorcism on the nine-year-old son. Magnet agreed to interview the family after Sunday Mass a few days later. He visited Amons and Campbell in their home. For two hours, Amons and Campbell detailed the phenomena for him. Then Campbell interrupted the interview to point out a flickering bathroom light. The flickering stopped each time the Reverend walked over to investigate, which he attributed to a demonic presence. The interview was interrupted again when Campbell pointed out Venetian blinds in the kitchen swinging even when there was no air current. The Reverend said he also saw wet footprints throughout the living room. Amons complained about having a headache. The Reverend said she convulsed when he placed a crucifix against her head. 
After a four-hour interview, he said he was convinced the family was being tormented by demons. He said he also believed there were ghosts in the house. He blessed the house before he left, praying and reading from the Bible and sprinkling holy water in each room. He told Amons and Campbell to leave because it wasn't safe. They temporarily moved in with a relative. Less than a week later, the two women were back in the house. The DCS family case manager checked the conditions of the home. Washington asked a Lake County police officer to come with her. Two other officers, each from Gary and Hammond Police Departments, asked to join them out of professional curiosity. Directly under the basement stairs was a dirt floor. The concrete around it was jagged as though it had been broken. The makeshift altar Amons had created was still in place, along with the rings of salt she had poured against the basement walls to dissuade the demons, according to a Hammond Police Department report. Campbell told officers that demons seemed to emanate from beneath the stairs. During the interview with Campbell, one of the officer's audio recorders malfunctioned. The power light flashed to indicate the batteries were dying, even though the officer had placed fresh batteries in the recorder earlier that day. Another officer recorded audio, and when he played it back later, he heard an unknown voice whisper, Hey, according to Lake County police officers. That officer also took photos of the house and one photo of the basement stairs. There was a cloudy white image in the upper right-hand corner. When an officer enlarged the photo, the cloud appeared to resemble a face. Lake County police records state the enlargement also revealed a second green image that police say looked like a female. Police Chief Austin said photos he snapped with his iPhone also seemed to have strange silhouettes in them. The radio in his police-issued Ford malfunctioned on the way home. Later, Austin said the garage at his Gary home refused to open, even though the power was on everywhere else. Austin said the driver's seat in his personal 2005 Infiniti also started moving backward and forward on its own. He said he had the car checked at a dealership, and the mechanic told him that the motor in the driver's seat was broken, which, the mechanic said, could have caused a distraction leading to an accident. Austin said he found himself starting to believe Amon's claims of paranormal activity, but the mental health professionals evaluating Amon's and her children remained skeptical. Campbell, Amon's, Austin, and the two other police officers from the initial visit went back to the home on the afternoon of May 10, 2012. They were joined by the Reverend, two Lake County officers, and a police dog and DCS family case manager, Samantha Illick. A county officer took his police dog around the home, but the dog didn't show interest in any particular area, according to Lake County police records. Everyone else headed into the basement. Illick touched some strange liquid she saw dripping in the basement and said it felt slippery yet sticky between her fingers. Magnet told police he wanted to check the dirt under the stairs for a pentagram or personal objects that might have been cursed. He said a pentagram might indicate a demonic presence and possible portal to hell. Or if someone had died in the house and was buried under the stairs, it could explain paranormal activity. One of the police officers dug a four-foot by three-foot hole beneath the stairs, unearthing a pink press-on fingernail, a white pair of panties, a political shirt pin, a lid for a small cooking pan, socks with the bottoms cut off below the ankles, candy wrappers, and a heavy metal object that looked like a weight for a drapery cord. Finding nothing else, the officer replaced the dirt and raked it over. Magnet blessed some salt, which he said is a barrier to evil, and spread it under the stairs and throughout the basement. Illick said she was later standing in the living room with the rest of the group when her left pinky finger started to tingle and whiten. She complained it felt broken. 
Less than ten minutes later, Illich said she felt as if she were having a panic attack. She couldn't breathe, so she walked outside to wait for the group. When the priest started questioning Amans inside the house, she complained of a headache and shoulder pain, according to police records. She joined Illich outside. Austin said he left the house at nightfall. The other officers continued to walk through the home. On the main floor, they noticed an oil-like substance dripping from the Venetian blinds in the bedroom, but couldn't figure out where it was coming from. To make sure Campbell and Amans hadn't poured oil on the blinds, two of the officers used paper towels to clean it off. The officers sealed the room for 25 minutes and stood nearby so no one could walk in. When they went back in, the oil had reappeared, according to police records. Magnet told the police the liquid was a manifestation of paranormal or demonic presence. He wrote a report detailing his findings and asked Bishop Dale Melzick's permission to perform an exorcism on Amens. Magnet said Melzick had never authorized an exorcism in 21 years of, as bishop of the Diocese of Gary. Melzick initially denied his request to do a church-sanctioned exorcism. The bishop told Magnet instead to contact priests who have performed exorcisms. Magnet said he needed other priests to give him the ritual for a minor exorcism which does not require church approval. The priests he consulted told him to look it up on the internet. He said he did an intense blessing on the house to expel bad spirits. That same day, he performed a minor exorcism on almonds. The ritual consisted of prayers, statements, and appeals to cast out demons. Two police officers and Illich, the DCS family case manager, attended the ritual. Illich said she left believing that something was going on, although she wouldn't go as far as saying it was demonic. She said she'd got chills during nearly two-hour right. We felt like there was something in the room with you, something breathing down your neck. Illich said she had a string of medical problems after visiting the home. A week after she visited the house, for the last time, Illich said she got third-degree burns from a motorcycle within 30 days. She also broke three ribs jet skiing, broke a hand when she hit a table, then broke an ankle running in flip-flops. After the minor ritual, Magnet told Amens to look up the names of demons that were tormenting her. Each demon has a name and personality. A name has power, the priest added, and he planned to use those names to fight the demons during the exorcisms. Amens said she and a friend looked up demon names online by searching for demons that represented the problems the family had been having. The computer kept shutting down, she said, and she felt sick. However, she said she found names that fit. One such name was Beelzebub, Lord of the Flies, Amens said. She said they also found names of demons that torture and hurt kids, but she felt explained what happened in the house. Amens said other high-ranking demons also were assigned to her, including lieutenants and sergeants. After the minor rite, Magnet said Bishop Melzick gave him permission to exorcise Amens. The ritual is the same as the minor exorcism, but more powerful because it has the backing of the Catholic Church. Magnet ultimately performed three major exorcisms on Amens, two in English and the last one in Latin. During each, Magnet said he praised God and condemned the devil. Magnet said his voice continued to get louder and more forceful until the demon weakened. He said he could tell how strong the demon was by how much Amens convulsed. Two police officers who had kept in touch with Magnet since the home's investigation stood nearby in case Amens needed to be restrained. Amon said she prayed with Magnet until it became too painful. She said she felt as if something inside her were trying to hold on and inflict pain at the same time. 
She said it was different from a natural pain, but felt as intense as giving birth. Eventually, Magnet said, Amens fell asleep. She said that was the demon's way of lessening the ritual's effect. In between the second and third exorcism, Magnet said he went on a retreat. A woman who assisted Magnet with some of the exorcisms helped set up a backup plan in case Amens had problems while he was gone. The woman wrote a long demon name, Magnet said he couldn't remember which one it was, on a piece of paper and tucked it in an envelope. Then she surrounded it with blessed salt. If Amens had problems, the woman would burn the envelope. By this time, Amens and her mother had moved to Indianapolis, but they drove back for the exorcisms and court hearings as her children were still in DCS care. Magnet said he blessed the family's new home to prevent more problems, but Amens called while Magnet was on his retreat complaining of bad dreams. So the woman burned the envelope. She saved the ashes to burn later in a church bonfire. After that, Amens said her nightmares ended. In the final exorcism at the end of June 2012, Magnet said he prayed and berated the demons in Latin rather than English. Police officers did not attend, so Magnet and his brother stood guard. Magnet said Amens convulsed while condemned the demons, but did not convulse during prayer. When she fell asleep, he said words of thanksgiving. It would be the last time Amens saw Magnet. She and her mother drove back to Indianapolis, where they say they now live without fear. Now, originally, that was the end of the story. Uh, however, it turns out that earlier in the month, the main guy from that TV show Ghost Adventures actually bought up that house for about $35,000. Here's what I think about it, more or less. I think that what we have here, on the surface, looks like an amazing case with credible witnesses and photographic evidence, EVPs, and, you know, multiple credible witnesses that have witnessed something. You know, on the surface, this looks like an amazing piece of proof for the argument for supernatural entities or life after death or demons or whatever this this feels like proof of something existing however the more you read and some of the stuff inside you know deeper down into the story some stuff just didn't sit right with me you know some stuff just sounded wrong you know the the priest had to look up stuff on the internet you know, I mean, I guess if you're going to do an exorcism, I don't know, I guess in my mind, maybe I watched too many exorcism movies or, you know, read too many, too many books about it or whatever, but maybe I've, I've romanticized it in my mind that when there's an exorcism, you know, the church backs it up and, you know, the guy knows what he's doing or somebody knows what he's doing. Nobody ever has to look it up on the internet. And, you know, I, I don't know. Maybe I feel like whoever's doing the exorcism should probably know a thing or two about demons, considering that if they're doing the exorcism, they obviously believe in demons. Although I think in the Catholic Church, you believe in demons anyway. So you should probably know their names. Instead, he had the possessed person look up the demon names. Now, if she's possessed, 
And she has to look up the name of the demon so they can use that name to cast the demon out. Wouldn't it be in the demon's best interest to feed her a false name, something so that when they cast out the demons, and if you could see me, you would know I used air quotes there. You know, when they cast out the demons, it, would, it wouldn't be that demon. You know, it, it would be ineffective, I would think. Just the fact, I mean, obviously, you know, it's the year 2014 now, and we use the internet for literally everything. Well, not literally everything, but pretty much everything. I mean, sure, where are you going to go if, if you don't have anybody else who has this information? You could find it on the internet, sure. But it just seems to me that somebody who's going to do an exorcism from the church should probably know this information, or at least have some sort of reliable source of information, because you can find anything on the internet, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be true. I mean, I've found plenty of bad information on the internet. And this story I took here, just to make sure that I had as much of it correct as I could have, I mean, I took heavily from IndieStar.com, and I will link to the story I mean, that I, I borrowed from here. But I mean, since it happened in Gary, Indiana, the Indianapolis newspaper IndieStar covered it, and that's really where I got most of the information here. I Had I gone to any other website, had I gone to another paranormal blog or podcast, who knows what I would have gotten. And, you know, that's... I don't know. It just seems like instead of going on the internet to find the ritual, I mean, I think somewhere in the Catholic Church they should have it posted or accessible, but instead of going on the internet to find it, and then going on the internet to find demon names, I mean, I don't know, that just, that, that, that drains a little bit of credibility away from it, in my opinion. However, another thing that I feel this story has going for it, is that, aside from, really, this article, and a video that accompanied the article. I haven't really heard or seen anything from the family involved. It doesn't seem like they're they're going out and trying to get publicity. There's there's no movie deal, no book deal, nothing like that. I think it doesn't look like they're trying to get anything from it. Um, I, if if there's something else out there that I'm missing, please feel free to correct me. But from from what I see, I I don't see them really trying to spread the word, although, I mean, the word has been spread pretty much worldwide now. Um, however, I did I did see some interviews with the uh, priest who performed the exorcism, and he did some stuff for Fox News. I know Fox News is probably not the most popular news outlet out there, but he did do a couple interviews. I believe one was with Bill O'Reilly, and uh, the other one was, I don't know, probably Megan Kelly. Somebody was interviewed with Megan Kelly. But, um, yeah, it seems like uh, the, the priest probably is getting more exposure than the family. And 
I, I have only seen like one video with the family where the the mother and the and the grandmother actually said anything, and the priest was even in that video. So I mean, it doesn't seem like the family's trying to get anything out of it, even if the priest might be doing. Well, even then, you know, couple interviews, the priest really isn't isn't really getting that much exposure either. So I mean, my first thought was, in general, my first thought was, all right, we've got some proof. This is this is a big step for us. And then I actually started going through the story, and I was like, well, these things don't quite sit right with me. But then I see, well, they're, it's not like they're trying to get a book deal or a movie deal. So, you know, it kind of like raises the legitimacy level again. And then the guy from Ghost Adventures bought the house, and boom, the legitimacy plummeted. So, uh, <laughs> and this is the guy that like goes to to places that are supposed to be haunted and sits in the dark and yells at the ghost, like j- calls them names and yells at them and dares them to do stuff and antagonizes. And you know, I don't know if I believe in ghosts. I mean, I've never seen one. I've never had a paranormal experience such as such as that. Like strong enough to really make me a firm believer, but if I was going to go to a place that was supposed to be haunted, I probably wouldn't conduct myself in the way that I've seen him conduct himself. But I've only watched... I haven't even really watched this show. I've only seen bits and pieces here because I don't watch those shows because I don't like them. They just seem fake to me. I mean, you can't always have a win and they always need a win because it's a TV show. Uh, but I think I got off track there. Anyway, uh, what do you guys think about it? Chime in with what you think. Is this real? Is it fake? I mean, I hope it's real, but, you know, we've been fooled before, haven't we? So, what do you, what do you think? Let me know. Go ahead and hit me up on, uh, on the website, which is wotb.blogspot.com. Uh, you can comment on the post, or you can email me directly using one of the forms on the left-hand side of the page, or you can go ahead and go to the Facebook page, which is facebook.com slash WOTB show. And for those of you that don't know, WOTB means what's out there blog, because it originally started as a blog and moved into a podcast. So there we are. So with that, I'm going to let you guys go. And I will see you next time. So until then, keep your eyes and your minds open, or you just might miss what's out there.